0: In Tibet, they call it Chomolongma, which translates to goddess mother of the world. In Nepal, they call it Sagamarta, peak of heaven. In the Western world, most know it as Mount Everest, the world's tallest mountain above sea level, standing at just over 29,000 feet high. roughly the equivalent of 20 Empire State Buildings, stacked one on top of the other. It stands without parallel as our most iconic symbol of human endeavor. Since Tenzing Norgay and Sir Edmund Hillary reached its summit in 1953, thousands more have completed the grueling climb and hundreds have died trying. Most remain where they fell, turning the mountain into a giant glacial graveyard. Back in the morning of May 25th, 2006, 50-year-old Lincoln Hall became one of the lucky few thousand to successfully make it to the top. Hall was ecstatic. After a short moment to take in the view, Lincoln began to make his way down. An hour or so later, around 28,000 feet, his breathing became labored under his oxygen mask. His footsteps grew heavy. He became disorientated. At that height, it is too high to land a helicopter. It's too high to carry someone. Lincoln's Sherpa companions stayed with him for nine hours, trying everything they could to force him to keep going. Each had been working for 18 hours at over 27,000 feet high. They were running out of oxygen, food, and water. With night falling, they had no choice but to leave Lincoln or risk dying themselves. This is Everest. These are the risks. At 7.20 p.m., as the temperature dropped to negative 15 degrees, Lincoln lay down on the snow and fell unconscious. There was nothing that could be done. The Sherpas took his oxygen, food and water, and solemnly made their way back down, leaving Lincoln, alone, the highest man in the world. A short time later, his wife and children, at home in Australia, received a phone call to tell them that Lincoln would not be coming home. I'm Donnie Dust, United States Marine Corps veteran and world-renowned survival expert. This is Rescue. Today's episode, because he is there. A few hours after Lincoln Hall was declared dead, another team of climbers arrived at Camp 3 of Mount Everest. At 27,000 feet high, Camp 3 is the last major resting point before climbers begin the final, arduous push to the summit. Among the group was 26-year-old Miles Osborne. For Miles, who was aiming to become one of the youngest British climbers ever to make it to the top, it was the culmination of years of planning, training, and saving up. I think Everest probably first entered
1: my mind when I Climbed Mount Denali up in Alaska, probably in about 2003. I climbed that with an American who he himself had been looking at going to Everest and he made this statement, which really resonated with me, which was that he felt that having climbed Denali, he had all of the equipment and he
0: had the know-how to go to Everest, should he want to. For the next 18 months. Miles dedicates his entire life to making it a reality. I worked several jobs and I just
1: saved everything that I had. Quite simply, everything for a year and a half was aimed at achieving that goal. I was outside with a heavy backpack, hiking up and down hills for hours at a time.
0: Miles decides to tackle the mountain from the north side, mainly because it's the cheapest option. I selected an expedition,
1: which was led by an American called Dan Mazur, a tremendously skilled mountaineer with extraordinary experience. I suppose this was probably a full service expedition, but run on uh, bare bones would be the best way I could put it.
0: Miles arrives at Mount Everest's Northside Base Camp in early April 2006. Here he meets up with Dan Mazur and the rest of the 11 or so climbers in Mazur's group who are all hoping to make it to the summit that year. Arriving at Everest Base Camp for the first time
1: is a striking experience. You know, a couple of hundred tents there. It's a vast scree field. It's the only large flat area close by. It's a vast
0: and windy place. And looming high over everything is the vast peak of Everest. You are
1: constantly within its view, irrespective of what you're doing at any time of day. It looks dead vertical. It has aggressive, steep edges. It has frightening bands of rock on the north face. It's a tremendously imposing mountain. It
0: feels like it's the only thing in your world at that point. For the next six weeks, Miles and the rest of Missouri's clients go through a grueling regime of daily hikes. Each ascent moves them a little bit higher up the mountain before returning them to base camp to rest. It's crucial to help your body acclimate to the extreme altitude if you are to have any chance of making it to the summit.
1: We would have rested for a few days and then we would have headed up to the North Col, which is the first camp on Everest. Initially, you might just hike up there one day and then come back down and rest for another day or two. The next time you go up, you might sleep there and then perhaps head a little bit higher up to Camp 2 and then come back down. So it's this constant trying to Get your body used to the altitude, but not spend so much time at 7,000 plus meters that your body starts to break down. You become weaker and start struggling through lack of sleep.
0: It's exhausting work, but for the most part, it's a lot of hanging around. Everest Base Camp
1: is in large part, people trying to kill time. They're eating as much as possible to keep their strength up, walking around to keep their legs moving, but they are counting down the days in between the different trips that they will take up the mountain. It's pregnant with excitement, but also boredom as people
0: wait to be able to move out of this place. Strangely, this can often be the most testing time for climbers. Everest
1: is mentally difficult because of the enormous amount of time that you have to spend waiting. You're at base camp for probably the better part of two months. 80% of that time you are waiting and sitting around and resting. That can be challenging for a lot of people. You spend all of this time training and getting in shape and planning, and then you have to spend a few weeks doing almost nothing.
0: It's a lot of time to think about the ascent. A lot of time also to dwell on all the things that might go wrong. In particular, whether your body will handle the altitude or not. For most people that I climbed with,
1: none of us had been to that sort of altitude before. So there's that unknown that you don't quite know
0: how you're going to handle that. It didn't help that there had already been an unusually high amount of deaths on the mountain that year. So there are a lot of rumors.
1: We knew about a Sherpa who had died early in April fixing ropes. We had heard rumors of other people. There was a sense that perhaps there was more death than one would typically anticipate in any given season. In spite of all that, Miles is raring to go. I doubt there are too many 26-year-old men who are particularly patient, and if there are, I wasn't one of them. For me, it was all about wanting to move, wanting to
0: get higher, wanting to progress, wanting to move forward. Like most people at the camp, what worries Miles the most isn't the fear of what might happen on the mountain but the possibility that he might not even get the chance to reach the top. There is no accounting for how the weather might shift on any given day, and no guide is willing to risk the life of their clients if the weather decides not to play ball. They will simply call off the climb and order everyone back down the mountain. The one
1: all-encompassing concern that I remember is just wanting to have the opportunity to go to the summit. It didn't worry me quite so much if I had failed in doing that, but to have gone to that much work and money and expense and then having the weather misbehave and prevent you from even having a chance to go to the top, that was a far
0: more frightening concern for me at that time. After six long weeks of waiting, Miles and the rest of Missouri's clients Get the green light to begin the long ascent to the summit. From here, they make their way steadily, first to advance base camp at 21,000 feet, then on to camp one at 23,000 feet, then camp two at 25,000 feet, and camp three at just over 27,000 feet. Each camp is roughly five hours climb from the next, followed by a night of rest before continuing on to the next one. At camp three, you enter the death zone, the height at which most climbers require oxygen to advance any further.
1: You are above 8,000 meters. Your body is starting to
0: die. It's not a place you want to spend any time. Dan Mazur's climbers travel in two groups. The first had already made it to the top and were on their way back down when Miles and his group arrive at Camp 3 in mid-May. Camp 3 is, even to call it
1: a camp is a bit of an exaggeration. It's a series of tents thrown on any piece of land that is roughly flat. You're not trying to sleep
0: there. You are just trying to rest there for a couple of hours. The plan is to get what rest they can before pushing onto the summit. A final eight to 12 hour hike. Due to the altitude and difficulty of the route, which includes near vertical climbs and a narrow rocky path flanked on both sides by sheer 8,000 foot drops, The last section is by far the hardest part of the entire ascent. But then, the weather changes. Climb leader, Dan Mazur, delivers the sickening news that it'll be too windy to make it up to the summit. He calls off the ascent and orders the climbers to return to base camp.
1: That was astonishingly disappointing. The weather had been stable. It had suddenly turned the day that we wanted to go to the summit. This was what I had feared most. This was not having the opportunity to try to go to the top. More
0: after the break.
1: Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No.
0: Back at base camp, most of the climbers in Miles' group make the decision to return home. But Miles can't bring himself to do it. Together with fellow climber Andrew Brash, he resolves to give it one final go. Me and Andrew Brash are the two
1: clients who decided that we've spent too much time, too much money, we've tried too hard to get here while we're here, why not give it another go? Andrew and I
0: decided that we
1: were going to rest for a day or two and then head back up the mountain in late May.
0: About a week later, after five straight days of climbing, Miles is back at Camp 3. It is May 25th. The same day, unknown to them, climber Lincoln Hall had been declared dead and left on the mountain. We
1: get inside a tent melt some snow for water. We rest, we eat as much as possible. Now, only four remain. Dan Mazur, myself, uh, Andrew Brash, a Canadian climber and pretty experienced, and Jangbu Sherpa, who was assisting. Dan had been to the summit of Everest multiple times. Dan's a, a very laid back, very funny guy, very smart, very well-read guy. Andrew was a teacher, similarly erudite, with a fairly serious climbing resume that involved some impressive technical routes on high Himalayan peaks. Jangbu Sherpa had worked with Dan for perhaps 10 or 15 years. Soft-spoken, friendly, and like many Sherpas, tremendously reliable and committed to the work. He and Dan had, I think, a deep level of trust with one another
0: the team has the place to themselves.
1: I think we were perhaps the only team anywhere above Camp 1. Everybody else had either gone to the summit and gone home or uh, had simply had enough and left.
0: From here, it will be a straight, uninterrupted shot to the summit. With the weather looking good, it's hard not to feel excited. All the planning, the 18 months of tireless work to save money And the grueling 40 days of acclimating, all of it is going to pay off. At shortly before midnight, Dan Mazur tells the team to get their gear together. They're going to the top. We came out of our tents. It was an astonishingly
1: calm evening. It was the perfect weather.
0: And there was nobody else who could impact us. they switch on their headlamps and begin to climb.
1: There's something unusual about climbing or hiking at night with a headlamp is that you tend to stare at your feet, you tend to be at home with your own thoughts, you
0: tend to look inward versus outward. At this elevation, the amount of oxygen in the air is 30% that at sea level. Even with the benefit of oxygen tanks, moving up the mountain is slow, an exhausting process. Putting one foot in front of the other as you slowly inch your way closer to the summit. Breathing four times,
1: move your left foot. Breathe four more times, move your right foot. I found myself focusing more on what was directly in front of me, checking my footing, making sure that my crampons were in the right place. I remember the wind consistently being in my ears, punctuated by the crunch of crampons as you move them through the ice, aware that I was in a place of astonishing beauty that I would likely never see again,
0: but never quite able to appreciate it. After five hours of climbing, Miles's group arrive at the North Ridge. They're now 27,000 and a half feet above sea level the highest people in the world. As all climbers know, this is the most dangerous part of the climb. The evidence is littered all around you. When we attained the North Ridge, you
1: immediately passed by a cave, which has perennially been known as Green Boots Cave, because there is a a body in there which has boots, uh, green boots. You're not quite stepping over the body, but you are certainly stepping around it. My abiding memory of coming across these bodies was of detached interest, but I could not escape the sense in this early morning twilight, 5 o'clock in the morning as the sun was starting to rise and these bodies were clad in this ethereal sort of darkness, I could not escape the sense that one of them was going to sit up and look at me. Eventually, the sun rises high enough to light the way. At that point, you can start to look around and you have this enormous face falling away to your left. The north face of Everest is on your right. And you're walking along a path that is perhaps a meter or two wide. There's very little
0: looking around because the terrain is quite steep. It is approaching 7 a.m. in the morning, roughly 12 hours since Lincoln Hall was declared dead. The sun started coming up. It started
1: to be light. You had this beautiful morning glow on the upper slopes of Everest. I could see the summit two or three hours away. I felt strong, I had plenty of oxygen. My team was strong. The weather was perfect. Sun was coming up nothing can get in the way of us going to the summit. And the moment that I had that thought, I saw this flash of orange.
0: And orange is a bizarre color to see at high altitude. Miles thinks he is looking at a tent, but there is simply no way anyone would be camping this high up. He wonders if he's hallucinating. We were the only folks out there. We hadn't seen other headlamps.
1: We knew that there weren't other climbers on the mountain, so to see a flash of orange there was very, very strange.
0: The others have seen it too, but there is little point discussing it.
1: You're at 8,400 meters.
0: No one's wasting
1: breath shouting at each other or having a conversation. And so
0: they push on. As they near the flash of orange, Miles soon realizes with astonishment that it isn't a tent he is seeing, but a man. This utterly bizarre scene and that
1: we don't imagine that anyone can be there. There was nobody in high camp, so we know nobody has passed us in the night. We couldn't quite conceive of how there might be a person here. We had no idea where he had come from. We didn't even know if he had come from the north or the south side of Everest.
0: The man is alone, with no sleeping bag, no food or water, and no oxygen. Despite being at 28,000 feet, 2,000 feet high in the death zone, the man appears to be just casually sitting on the edge of a 10,000 foot drop while trying to take all of his clothes off. This was something that truly made
1: me question whether a high altitude was having some sort of effect on my mind, because it becomes clear this is a man, but he is in the process of stripping off his clothing as quickly and as much as he can. He has a fleece that he has opened. He has his shirt opened underneath that. He's messing around with his sunglasses. As we walk closer, he looks up and he says, I bet you're surprised to see me here. It was a correct statement. I was. I was very surprised to see him there.
0: Despite the man's strangely lucid statement, it's clear he's removing his clothes because he is completely delirious.
1: This is something that can affect people in very late stages of hypothermia come to believe that they are actually warm and they start shedding layers of clothing. It's a really, really bad sight. It was very clear that we were dealing with somebody who was in
0: severe trouble. Dan Mazur immediately pulls the man away from the ledge and tries to talk to him. He asks him what he's doing there, but the man seems not to know. They ask him what his name is. Suddenly, A look of surprise comes over the man's face, as though it had only just come to him then. Yes, I do know my name. It's Lincoln Hall. Incredibly, despite being declared dead 12 hours before, spending an entire night on Everest without oxygen, a sleeping bag, food or water, Lincoln Hall is alive.
1: He was astonishingly weak. He had pretty serious frostbite on his fingers. He hadn't been wearing gloves, I don't think. It looked like he had
0: frostbite on the tips of his nose and possibly his ears as well. Lincoln is shivering badly too, and keeps saying something about being on a boat ride, as if his mind is somewhere else completely. Out of nowhere, Lincoln announces, I have to get off the boat then suddenly launches himself toward the edge of the cliff. He is inches from toppling over the edge when Dan Mazur hurriedly grabs him and pulls him back from the precipice. In his delirious state, Lincoln fights back, but is eventually subdued by Mazur. With the help of the others, Mazur succeeds in tying Lincoln to the ice to stop him from hurting himself. They anchor him to the mountain with a snow picket that Dan hammers into the ice. He was trying to pull himself off that face.
1: If he had achieved that, he, of course, would have certainly died. Lincoln was, had the strength of a, about an eight-year-old child at that point, and possibly the mental acuity of one at that stage as well. He was not in any position to be untying a picket uh, and uh, detaching himself from the anchor that Dan had built.
0: More after the break. With Lincoln secure, Miles and the rest of the group do what they can to improve his condition. They get him back into his suit and try to put his gloves and hat on. But Lincoln just takes it all off again. They give him oxygen and water, but he seems completely uninterested. Eventually, he calms enough to accept keeping his clothes on. Just then, two other climbers approach from below. Perhaps 20 minutes
1: after we had come across Lincoln, two climbers, both moving without oxygen, moving pretty quickly as well. Whatever the reason was, they muttered a cursory greeting and uh, moved quickly on their way uh, up past
0: us they wouldn't have been near us for more than five or 10 seconds. It is a harsh lesson about just what getting to the summit of Everest means to some people. My memory at the time was being very surprised that
1: they had not stopped and offered to assist.
0: I found it very difficult to comprehend how that was the case. On their own again, the group discusses their options. At this point, there is still time to get to the summit, but everything hinged on Lincoln. At that altitude, it is simply too dangerous to carry someone down. The only way he would be getting off the mountain was if he could somehow find the strength to get back on his feet and walk down. The sad reality hits them all, that if Lincoln doesn't get well enough, They will have to leave him here to die.
1: There wasn't much that we could do for him as far as moving him. You don't have the ability to lower them as you would on the south side of Everest to use gravity to assist you. So if somebody's not able to walk, they probably aren't going to get off the mountain. Our thinking was to try to get him warm Try to give him food and and warm fluid, and to try to get his strength to a point that he would at least be able to stand.
0: Next, Dan gets on the team's radio and contacts the team's chef, who is down at Advanced Base Camp. He tells him to wake up anyone who knows Lincoln Hall. Eventually, the message is relayed to Alex Abramov, the man who led Lincoln's expedition to the summit. Abramov is absolutely astonished to hear that Lincoln is still alive. He promises to see if he can get someone to come up and help. Then the radio's battery dies. Miles and the others can only wait, doing everything they can to help Lincoln stay warm and safe on the mountainside in the hope that help will arrive in time. Under the bright, gigantic sky, Miles can almost touch the summit, only two hours' climb away.
1: For that first hour or two, I think Andrew and I were probably still hopeful that there may be some folks from his team lower down on the mountain who might be able to get there quite
0: quickly to to help him. For Miles and Andrew, it's now or never. We were at the very back end
1: of the weather window that we needed to be able to go to the top. We had already been to 8,000 meters twice within the past week. Base camp was closing up for the season and our time on that expedition was over. That was most certainly the last shot that we would have at that point.
0: As the clock ticks on, their window for making it to the summit steadily closes.
1: As the clock wound on to 10, 11 o'clock, it became clear that there was going to be no opportunity to go to the summit because the weather tended to get bad early in the afternoon.
0: There isn't for a moment, any question about what the priority is. But watching his chances slip away, second by second, so close to the top of the world, is hard to take for miles. I distinctly remember an
1: overwhelming sense of enormous disappointment because this is something that you have worked for and trained for, and in that moment, it was very hard to see a bigger picture that in fact, the summit is completely irrelevant when a man's life is on the line.
0: I think at that exact moment, I did not have that perspective. Eventually, after five hours of keeping Lincoln alive, Miles spots two climbers approaching from below. Two Sherpas, colleagues of Alex Abramov.
1: We spent probably five hours with Lincoln and we were thrilled to see uh, a rescue team of Sherpas moving very rapidly up from high camp. I believe they may have come from camp one, possibly camp two. They were the only way, realistically, that Lincoln was going to get off the mountain. Once this team was there, and these folks are, of course, far stronger than anyone on our team and far more capable of moving Lincoln off the mountain, at that stage, I had no doubt that he would get down at that point.
0: With Lincoln now in the capable hands of the Sherpas, it's time for Miles to leave
1: there was no reason for us to remain there. It was too late in the day to go to the summit. We certainly couldn't offer any assistance to these quite extraordinary Sherpas beyond what they could do on their own. So at that point, we headed down to camp three and then ended up going all the way down to the advanced base camp that night.
0: With each step, the summit recedes further and further behind them, until eventually it disappears into the clouds.
1: I remember very distinctly my, t- my thoughts turn inward. And I remember this extraordinary feeling of disappointment and of failure for, for not making it to the top of this mountain. That was a goal that I had been so focused on. To be able to go to all the fundraising and, and working multiple jobs and, and earning money to get there and then all of the training and being on the mountain for two months in order to be able to achieve all of those things. This is something that I had become quite fixated on. Uh, You go to the summit or you don't, and not a lot of gray areas in between that. It was something that was tremendously consuming. Uh, It was uh, really quite a devastating feeling to have been so close and not gone to the summit. For a few days there, I did not have the perspective of understanding that... In fact, the summit was entirely irrelevant. And the fact that Lincoln had survived was the important thing. I remember passing a tourist who was hiking up above base camp a little bit. And we were just about the only people left on the mountain at that point. And he looked at me and he was a Chinese tourist and he said, summit. And he smiled and he put his thumbs up. It was a question. And I said, no. And he just looked really disappointed and he looked down at the ground and he kept walking. Uh, And that image stuck with me because it was how I felt at that time. It was that nothing else mattered but the fact that I had not gone to the top of this mountain. It took me days to get to that perspective to realize that, in fact, the summit was entirely irrelevant.
0: In an incredible act of selfless endurance from the Sherpas, Lincoln Hall is cajoled and inched back down the mountain, stumbling step by step. A few hours later at camp three, he is met by more Sherpas who join in with helping him down. From there, an exhausted and still delirious hall is helped all the way back down to camp one where he is treated by a doctor. Despite showing signs of cerebral edema and significant frostbite, incredibly, he is found to be in relatively good health. After that, He is placed on the back of a yak and carried the rest of the way down. A short time later, Lincoln's wife and children receive a second phone call to tell them that Lincoln was in fact not dead at all. As it transpired, one of Lincoln's associates on the climb with him, Thomas Weber, was not so fortunate. He collapsed shortly before Lincoln and died on the mountain. Eleven climbers died that year trying to summit Mount Everest, the second highest fatality rate in history at that time. Having made it to base camp the day before Lincoln, after a night of rest, Miles has no desire to hang around. As soon as we got to base camp, we quickly packed up and left and headed back to Nepal. For the next few days, Miles and the others from Dan group let off some steam in Nepal. Then one night, he receives an unexpected visitor. I had spent a very late night at
1: the casino with one of the other climbers, and we'd had a few beers, and we'd had some fun. Then I got a knock on the, the door at 7 a.m., And they said there's a guy downstairs to see you i didn't know anyone in Kathmandu so i didn't really understand what was going on and it was lincoln came over and he said look i wanted to try and grab you before i left i just wanted to say
0: thank you despite losing a toe and six fingertips to frostbite lincoln made a full recovery and continued to climb Two years later, he published a book about his experience. He invited Miles to join him for its release. It was an honor to be there for his book launch,
1: to talk to the guy a little bit more who I'd met that day on the mountain, to find out and meet this person with a irreverent and very sort of dad-jokey sense of humor. It was a very important reminder that some of the decisions that we make In the heat of the moment, in challenging circumstances, are of course decisions that have long-term repercussions on people and their families. I met his family. It was a moment that was extremely touching. It was poignant. It's it's a pretty extraordinary experience to to meet the wife of somebody who thinks that her husband had died and you in some small way have, have played a role in the fact that he's been able to come back. I stayed a little bit at his house out in the Blue Mountains. We hiked together. Uh, And that was, in fact, the the last time that I would see him.
0: In 2011, Hall was diagnosed with mesothelioma, a cancer commonly caused by asbestos. It is thought Lincoln was unwittingly exposed to this substance back when he was a child helping his father to build two cubby houses on the property where he grew up. He died the following year at age of 56. Today, Miles continues to live and work in America, and though he also continues to climb, he has no ambitions to return to Everest. You've been listening to Rescue with Donny Dust. Rescue is a Sony Music Entertainment production. Thanks to all the contributors for sharing their story with us. Rescue is produced by Richard McLean Smith. The executive producer is Louisa Field. The junior producer is Martha Miller. Scoring and sound design by Gulliver Tickle. Music composed by Eleni Hasabas. The production coordinator is Lily Hambly. The production manager is Kat Moran. Thanks to Jez Nelson, Chris Skinner, and Julia Stevenson. If you like this podcast, then do check out other Sony podcasts.